This is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. Get along down the road. We got a long, long way to go. Scared to live, scared to die. We ain't perfect, but we try. Get along while we can. Always give love the upper hand. Paint a wall, learn to dance, call your mom, buy a boat, drink a beer, sing a song, make a friend. Can't we all get along? All right, Brendan. So what are we talking about this week? So this week was like a relatively calm week, uh, relatively speaking, in our political world. Uh, some could say a, a bit boring, but as we'll discuss later in the show, boring is not necessarily a bad word these days when we're talking about American politics. Uh, with that said, there is still a, a lot happening. And so the main part of the episode is we'll get into the transition that does seem to be underway. You know, just yesterday, the General Services Administration, which we had uh, mentioned a couple episodes ago, um, finally certified the election, which and we'll get into what that means for the for the Biden administration elect transition. Um, this week, Biden has been unveiling some of his cabinet picks. Um, there's there's a little bit to discuss there. So that, that'll be the bulk of the episode. Um, but before we get into all of that, we're going to just wrap up some final thoughts that we had on our coronavirus episode last week. I think both of us, after we were done recording last week, kind of sat back and were like, well, we we said a lot. Uh, it was kind. Of, it was. I described it as like a sprawling mess. I think we touched on a lot of things uh, that I think were worthwhile to talk about. Uh, but I think there were some things that both of us felt like we had kind of meant to talk about and 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 didn't bring up in the course of the conversation. As the conversation just goes from like one point to another to another. I, I said this to you. I was like, it's almost like if you ever listen to like the origin podcast, we said that we used to have these conversations over too many drinks. I was like, that felt like last week, even though we hadn't had any drinks where we would get like 15 minutes into a conversation. We're like, wow, how did we get here? Uh, so we're going to spend this first segment uh, just discussing, you know, wrapping up that coronavirus talk. So I'll kick it over to you. What, what were some of the things that, you know, after we had this talk last week that you felt like, Hey, I, I, I meant to bring that up or I, I wish we had talked about that. Yeah, I mean, I think it it really just felt emblematic of the coronavirus in general, where it was just like good. a giant. That's a good comparison. That's what yeah. we were going for. Yeah. Information overload. Don't really know how to deal with it. Don't really know what to do with it. And and that's, like you know, that. yeah, just kind of how it felt. I think, <laughs> yeah, the, uh, you know, a couple of things that I, I think I, I missed, uh, I missed the mark on. Um, one being, uh, I think, especially early on uh, in the summer, a lot of the comparison between um, red states and blue states and how potentially blue states had, uh, you know, more severe restrictions, um, but were also doing worse on, from like a, a death standpoint and somehow those two being linked. I think <clears throat> that for me was a very... Uh, interesting or, or if not also emblematic of, of how we think about causality when we're talking about two things happening at the same time. Um, and, and certainly like if I flipped on Fox News, it was often saying like, you know, Governor Cuomo's like not only killing our, killing the economy, but he's also killing our elder, elderly. And um, I don't know, I think for me, one of those things is you know, taking a step back and, and, and listening to points of argument like that and thinking about how absurd that they are, um, that of course the shutdowns themselves are not um, contributing to increased number of um, coronavirus infections. I mean, insofar as perhaps people were, you know, are, are typically more distant from strangers than they might be from family members and the virus is maybe spreading from the family, but in and of itself, the shutdowns are not linked uh, directly to um, <laughs> spreading the virus more. Um, and then maybe on the on the flip side to that, sort of the argument that um, the shutdowns are what is sort of you know uh, un the un major undoing of the economy. I think is also sort of a misplaced argument. Um, I think there were a couple of uh, studies that sort of showed in states that that were not nearly as restrictive 
maybe you wouldn't have had um, such a steep drop off in the unemployment rate, but still, you know, those economies were not doing particularly well. I think, you know, blue states from a demographic standpoint just had a, um, a, a bigger challenge because they have more concentration of employees and service industries um, that sort of necessitate interactions between people. Whereas in some of these areas that are sort of big sprawling parts of the country, you have, you know, agricultural workers working on their own farms. You have, you know, types of industry that you really don't have in cities that are just by the nature of how uh, they are going to be more insulated from the impacts of a virus. Um, and I think, I think it, it, it got to be very easy to sort of put these things in contrast when they're just not apples to apples comparisons. And sure, you can try and, and take um, some bits and pieces from each of them to, to sort of try and figure out truly, you know, what works and what doesn't work, but painting these things with the broad brush of, well, these are democratic led cities. So obviously it's the policies of the Democrats that are making this worse and not really, you know, delving into what is actually causing certain things. And, and um, I don't know. Yeah. I, I think I, 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 t I totally failed in my uh, rambling <laughs> last time. I might even be failing in the rambling again this time, but I, I think, uh, at least I wanted to get that point. Yeah, no, I have, I have a few of those too. So I, I respect that. Um, yeah, I, I do think that it's, it's true that as particularly at the beginning, that there was just such a confluence of factors and not necessarily, I think at least on the more moderate Republican side that people were saying, well, the kind of nanny state, quote unquote, draconian measures that a lot of these blue state governors were putting in place were causing the coronavirus deaths. But I think it was, it was more like, well, look, you're, you guys have the biggest lockdowns in your blue states and you still have the most deaths in your state. So one, it's not working. And two, I don't want to live like that. I think that was kind of the criticism, but I think it's fair to say that, you know, with all of these factors that were jumbled up that people, of course, on both sides chose the ones that fit their narratives the best. And I, mean, I think you can make the case to the other side too, where now that the virus seems to be raging much more in, you know, quote unquote, red states, that people would say like, well, they don't believe in science, you know, like those are governors that didn't mandate have mask mandates and didn't shut down businesses when it's like, well, I mean, that might be a factor there. But there's also the factor of it. Well, it just took a little time to spread to the middle of the country where it hit New York and Los Angeles and Boston right away, given that we're on the coasts and that we're a more dense city. So yeah, I, mean, I think I, that's nothing that we haven't said that is, you know, it's not unusual that both sides would pick out narratives there. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Cer I certainly not revolutionary to to point that out. I I think it it you know it it just becomes sort of like a false um, choice by saying like you know well well they did this and they're still having sort of the most deaths, but of course had they done nothing given their right. demographic layout you know right. their urban density and all those things it could have been way worse. But of course right. we don't see that, so there's no point in pointing that out either. But Right. It's, yeah, it's I, kind of like when, uh, like the Trump administration, this was kind of a late thing that they tried to do in, in the election cycle. Well, they were like, well, 2 million people were supposed to die. It was right, like, right. no, like that's <laughs> if no one had done a single thing. Yeah. So, like, so like you saying that like we cut, like cut the deaths by like, we only have one tenth of the deaths. Like we cut the deaths by 90% of the estimates is like, that's, that's not true. Right. And so it, it's kind of the reverse argument of what you're saying of like, yeah, New York locked down all of these things and still had the most deaths, but those, you know, really have nothing to do with each other. And if they hadn't locked down at all, those deaths, you know, almost assuredly would have been, you know, exponentially higher. Yeah. 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 Right. And then, and then I guess, and to your point, uh, not that it needs to be said again, but it's sort of how it is with coronavirus. It's just going to beat you over the head with it. But like now these issues are starting to spread to red states and you're starting to see some of those governors that were very fiercely like, you know, we trust the people of Utah, South Dakota, whatever. And I think South Dakota is probably still against the mass mandate, but a lot of them are now like, you know, uh Oh, maybe it's time for uh, a mass mandate because, you know, to a degree you, you can trust people, but to a degree you can't. And that's kind of what we have like government for. <laughs> so I, I do want to, I'm glad you touched on that because, you know, last week we had talked to, you had asked me like, what can a Biden administration do? And we kind of were like, you know, unfortunately, probably not a whole lot, except for changing the, the messaging and the tone around the coronavirus. And 
whether, again, I don't necessarily know that there's a cause and effect here, but within the last week, we've seen the governors of North Dakota, Iowa, New Hampshire, Arizona, West Virginia, all Utah, all um, Republican governors who have implemented mask mandates and, and, and shut down um, certain segments of, of their states, uh, partially, I'm sure, due to the rising, the increase in cases in their states, but also it might be where like you can kind of break with Trump in his messaging now that, you know, it appears that he's on his way out. And if, you know, the president isn't necessarily kind of putting that pressure on Republicans and Republican state leaders to, to adhere to his messaging. Well, now you have a little more wiggle room politically to make a mask mandate because, you know, the incoming administration is, is also saying that. So I, I think, again, I don't know if it's a cause and effect here, but, you know, we, we had been a bit hopeful and optimistic that changing in, in messaging and tone would positively impact, you know, certain populations of the country. Yeah, I, 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 that's a very fair point that I definitely hadn't considered. Um, I think in, in many ways, you know, there is this relationship between how the federal government also kind of gives out aid. Um, and so governors, you know, rationally would be, um, you know, especially governors that are, you know, typically going to, to be able to, to get curry favor with uh, a president of their own party would be, you know, hesitant to break with him. Um, but now, now the situation's a little bit different. Um, and, and in many ways, it's, it's an easy avenue to kind of curry favor with the, with the new guy who doesn't want to, really doesn't want to do national uh, kind of sweeping legislation just because because I think there is um, a, an understanding that would it would be, you know, potentially 50% unpopular, which is, that's pretty unpopular. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so that, you know, now if the, if the governors are doing it, there's kind of a little bit of, of, uh, a, of a give and take there. I think <clears throat> this is kind of a theme, though, that it's unfortunately playing out in so many different areas where, people are far more concerned. Um, and this is certainly not a new thing, but um, something that I just can't help but, but recognize that people are just far more concerned with how things um, play out politically than like, what is the right thing to do in the, it, in the moment? What is like the right decision to make here? All right. Totally agree with that. That's actually a nice little transition to the next thing that I wanted to talk about that I feel like we both failed to bring up last week is that you know, as a country, we've been hit really, really hard. And, uh, and even today, as the Dow is the Dow jumped over 30,000 and set a, a new record. The reality is, is that, you know, middle class and lower income people are still really suffering as a result of the, the pandemic and shutdowns. And as you noted last week, uh, those effects are felt, you know, at a much higher percentage not only health-wise, but economically in minority black and brown communities. And so looking at the federal government response is that the CARES Act was signed into law on March 27th. So I believe that was like literally two weeks after our, our very first shutdown here. I think we shut down on March 13th here in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Two weeks later, Congress passed the biggest stimulus bill in, in United States history. It was, it was, more than double the size of the 2009 Recovery Act. And it did a lot, a lot of good things, right? And it was certainly not perfect, but you know, we got the stimulus checks that I think were, were really big for a lot of families, those $1,200 checks. Um, there was the, the PPP program you know, for, for small businesses. And again, this was not a perfect bill and was not necessarily used appropriately you know, kind of across the spectrum, but you kind of give credit to Congress for acting so quickly to rec recognize that like, people and businesses were, were in danger and we needed to rush relief to them. Well, that was the last bill that we had. You know, it, it's now the end of November. It's, you know, eight, eight months later and there has been no other legislation to try and help all of these people who are suffering in our country. And, and I think politicians on both sides have spoken to people are suffering and, you know, kind of pointed fingers the other side, but nothing has been done. Uh, you know, the, the Democratic-led Senate um, by uh, Speaker Pelosi and the Republican-led, the Democratic-led House by Speaker Pelosi and the, uh, the Republican-led Senate by um, Majority Leader McConnell uh, and the Trump administration 
have been talking since July. And I mean, there was some talk that it was maybe going to get done by election day. There was some talk that it was going to get done the lame duck. Those aren't going to happen. And so now it's been pushed further still. And while we said that, like, you know, if you're, if you, if you're a Biden administration fan, that like hope is on the horizon. Again, that's still two plus months away. And even that doesn't guarantee that like relief is coming. So I, I guess like it was just something I wanted to bring up that, you know, it's been eight months of politicians talking about how much our country is suffering and nothing has been done in those eight months to help those people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, just another almost example of politicians like politicianing, it was using sort of the suffering as the country to lay blame at the, at the other side. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a tough one, right? Like in general, politically speaking, Democrats are typically the ones that are uh, much more forthcoming with aid in, in multiple different avenues. And historically speaking, uh, you know, the Republicans have sort of been the check on that kind of spending um, worrying about things like the deficit. And, and it's funny that this time around um, that's really not what we hear at all. They're, I mean, there is, you know, certainly talk about a, a trillion plus dollar additional spending package um, does have some of those kind of fiscal responsibility uh, claims out there, but it's almost like at this point, what's another trillion? I don't, I don't know. <clears throat> I'm, I'm now speaking from a point of, of, uh, of lack of information as to, you know, what are, the major hurdles um, from getting a, 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 another round of funding passed. I know earlier in the summer, it was sort of the amount of the, um, of the sort of the federal relief bill, like the direct payments. Um, there was sort of a question about, can we maintain the $600? Democrats definitely wanted to keep it at that level. Republicans were, sort of saying that's too high and that certain people are not going back to work specifically because they're getting paid more um, from the federal government. I think, <clears throat> I think, uh, I think just the, I guess the philosophy of, you know, what do you do in, in these sorts of times, obviously in many ways, this is unprecedented. Um, it's not just a typical recession where, um, you know, there's a, sort of like a lack of consumer confidence and people with money are, are taking their money out of the economy and just saving it. And that's what's causing sort of a contraction here. Instead, you have people who would otherwise like to be doing things with their cash, it seems like just unable to. And that's, you know, kind of cascading through, um, cascading through the economy. So I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I, I really don't know. Yeah, and I, I'm not like a big uh, like stimulus guy because I, I don't think these federal bailouts are necessarily like what we should be doing as a country. I just wanted to point out the fact that you know we, we've we've shut down large segments of the country and people are really hurting economically and you know nothing's been done. It, it just reminded me like when you jumped off and said like people are trying to score political points. Well, you know Pelosi's got a pretty firm control of her her caucus and she put forth like a three trillion dollar additional bill over over the summer and fall. And, you know, got a lot of plaudits on the left. And she said, hey, I'm ready to make a deal, right? People want more money. I have it right here. And Republicans were like, oh, like, that seems like we, we just doubled the biggest stimulus we've ever gave. Now, now we're tripling it within six months. Like, I mean, <laughs> maybe we should start to think about the, the deficit a little bit here. We just put two trillion more on the deficit. And it's totally fair to call McConnell like a seasonal deficit hawk. But, uh, you know, he was he was pretty much saying that, like he, he had a bill for $500 billion. And he said that we're going to give this directly to small businesses and individual stimulus checks. And they were, Republicans are pretty much like, I don't want to go above a trillion. Pelosi wouldn't drop down from her $3 trillion number. I mean, there's just, there's just no deal to be made. Like they, they talked for months. They're still, you know, supposedly, um, you know, Mnuchin and, and Pelosi are talking, but like, that's not going anywhere. Like that, that gap is staggering. And so, you know, McConnell brings his bill to the floor and passes it through the Republican Senate and says, look, we have a deal. And we have a bill and Pelosi passed it through the Democratic led, you know, uh, house and says, we have, we have a bill and they both blame each other for not coming to the table. But, 
nothing gets done. And I mean, Trump was just a wild card through the whole thing. No one knew what he wanted, what he was going to veto. His position changed, you know, depending on when he was tweeting or at his rallies. Uh, so, I mean, that's one, again, like you're hopeful that, you know, a Biden administration that, you know, he's claimed like Joe knows Congress, right? He's been there for 40 years. Like there's this hope that he's able to bridge some of this a little bit, but um, you know, I'm, I, I just can't imagine how frustrating it is for a business to be shut down and said, you can't open it and provide for yourself and your employees and your family. And then for that same government to not allow, not give you any relief. You know, it, it's just, it's, it's just a double whammy that, um, you know, it, 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 yeah, it's brutal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think, I think any logical um, application of wide scale shutdowns as a main, as a means to sort of deal with the coronavirus has to come with um, has to come with federal funding. Like if the only av- or, you know, the only real tool that we have to deal with the coronavirus um, is to sort of shut down the economy, then the only um, then like that has to go hand in hand with, with additional federal spending because in this country, we don't really save money. We live paycheck to paycheck. And if all of a sudden all the paychecks stop coming in, uh, you got, you got to do something about it. Um, I think, yeah. yeah. Well, it goes like a little bit, I think to the, something I was trying to say last week, I don't know if I said it well, where it was like the federal, I mean, not necessarily the federal government, but a bunch of state governments pulled out this like emergency lockdown measure back in March and April. And for the most part, people went along with it because we recognize like, hey, we will cede some of you know, our rights right now because this is a real, you know, a, a time of crisis. You figure it out, you get us back out there and we'll move from there. And that's also the time where Congress passed the CARES Act, right? So it was kind of like, to your point, if we're going to shut down, which we largely did in March and April, we're going to pair it with, you know, the, this, this relief, the stimulus relief. Great. But unfortunately, what happened was money that these lockdowns, the government didn't see any of that power back to the people. They, they, they kept these lockdown measures going, you know, in, in many of these states, and it wasn't paired with stimulus. So you're left with, you know, you're screwed on both ends, like I had said earlier. So yeah, it, it's been disappointing because, you know, as we talked about last week, now when it might be time to kind of put the lockdown measures in and give us a little more stimulus, well, as you said really well, like once you flip the switch on and you never flipped it off, you, you can't flip it back on. You know, so it's like people are tired of, of the measures. You know, we're not getting any stimulus, so you need to go back to work. It's, you know, it's created this confluence of, of you know, really a disaster where people are suffering both health-wise and economically. I don't know. This is not necessarily like what we all wanted to get, what we wanted to get out of this segment, but really just all to say that, uh, you know, we, we continue to be in a really hard a really tough spot. And like I said last week, it's going to be that way for a couple of months, you know, knock on wood, we continue to get, you know, good work, good news on these virus, uh, these vaccines, um, FDA approval should be coming shortly. And last I heard, we're at 20 million doses of the, of the vaccine by December to, you know, frontline workers. So I, I mean, again, it's that, it's that dual nature of like the short term looks really bleak, but longer term, there's this light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe just to wrap this up, and I don't actually, I don't know if you know this. I, I definitely do not. Is there basically just an understanding in Congress, if we pass something, that will be the end of it? And, and like the big reason that we can't, like if the Republicans are giving us whatever, 500 billion now, we can just freaking start there and then uh, like immediately start on the next round. Because until the economy like actually opens back up again, there is no like, okay, we, you know, we did it now. We did the aid and it's done. Like, what is the, what is the reason that we can't take these things piecemeal? Like, why does it have to be this massive legislation? Well, wow, that's a great question, Ricky. Yeah, it's spoken like a, a good Republican right there. Uh, that's pretty much what McConnell said. And the argument was like, hey, we need to rush aid to certain segments of the population right now. Give me 500 billion. We can get that done. That'll get through the Senate. I can get that to Trump's desk. I can get. I could have got that passed in July. That was his argument. It's like let's get it done and kind of see how everything plays out. And Pelosi just didn't want to concede on certain points, um, particularly on things like state and local aid and uh, you know money for schools and, and testing protocols. Um, like they couldn't agree on that language. And Pelosi, probably correctly, 
said that like, hey, if we give him this 500 billion, he's not coming back to the table in a month yeah. or three months or six months. It's either we get this massive $3 trillion deal done or, or nothing. And so my criticism of her would be, she's chosen nothing. And you know, my criticism of McConnell would be like, all right, well, you didn't really try to budget all. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where things stand. I mean, I think like, yeah, in an ideal world, we would pass the 500 billion. We would have passed that five months ago. And then we also maybe would have had another five bill in October and maybe another five in, in January or whatever. But I mean, those ships have sailed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I uh, <laughs> probably won't, won't, without knowing too much, won't, won't try and give too much credit. I, I guess. Yeah. As, as you were saying, I think there were um, some, some other sticking points uh, particularly like as to the allocations of that money, what was, what was going to payroll protection, what was, um, what were direct payments, what's sort of forgivable loans, what is, um, subsidies, all, all that sort of stuff. Um, particularly under the Trump administration, there was a lot of sort of, uh, random special interest groups currying sort of, sort of favor on specific. I mean, I guess that's not unique to the Trump administration, but, I'd say the way um, people were able to appeal to his vanity might have been um, slightly more <laughs> uh, unique than in, in previous administrations. So I, I guess I, uh, but, but yeah, that is, um, it just seems, you know, when, when people in general talk about like the broken Congress and the yeah. broken government, this is exactly what they point to. Like, you know that we need money, you know that we need money and, like what? What are we? What are we doing? What are we doing here? <laughs> so it's like that. Scott, you ever watch Bad Beats on Sports Center with Scott Van Pelt? That's the lane. What are we doing here? That's, that's my question exactly. Fair. All right. So, um, we'll, we'll wrap that there. I think we're tired of talking about coronavirus. I'm sure people are tired of listening. Nobody to wants to listen to this. <laughs> and I mean, if there's any news down the line, we'll, we'll touch on it. But you know, given you know. Uh, who knows? Whatever. We're going to wrap that coronavirus discussion for this podcast right now. Uh, when we come back, we'll get started on um, the GSA certification and, and where we are in the transition process. So as we had mentioned last week, the General Services Administration, the GSA, which I had kind of maybe barely been aware of, like you had to provide the name for me. Um, so I can't imagine that most Americans were even aware that this part of the federal government even existed. But uh, one of the jobs of the GSA is to certify the elections. And what that means is just to say that, you know, the state's electors, each state has certified it. And so that we have a winner. Uh, and this is important because now that allows the transition team of the incoming administration to work with the current administration as part of the whole transition. And, you know, obviously that's important anytime, but it's particularly important this year where we have, you know, the coronavirus pandemic raging, uh, the economy is, is still really struggling for most people. Uh, we have what I would say is like the normal uh, like threats of whether it's terrorism or terrorism or, you know, Iran, North Korea, China, Russia, however you want to say it. And a lot of our, you know, safety is, is in continuity. It is in making sure that the government's functioning on January 19th and also on January 21st. Um, and so the GSA certification allows Biden's advisors to get in and begin working with people in the government, not just, not just Trump's people, but, you know, these, you know, career government officials that serve throughout administrations uh, and particularly allows them to get access to coronavirus statistics, uh, vaccine plans, you know, the rollout plans, all, all of these things are really important. So Emily Murphy, who, again, I can't imagine that anybody knew who this person was before two weeks ago. Uh, she's the head of the GSA. She finally made the call yesterday, um, November 23rd, to certify the election results. Um, President Trump got on Twitter and said that, you know, I just want to thank Emily Murphy. She's been doing a great job. I have instructed the GSA to, to, uh, to certify the results. 
in one tweet. And it actually, you read the first tweet and it's like, this is essentially as close as he's going to get to uh, uh, conceding. And then the very next tweet is, of course, we can see nothing. And we still believe that uh, all of our legal challenges will prevail. And we rightfully won this election. It was rigged. But we will allow the GSA to continue with their certification. Uh, so I just want to, well, I'll toss that over to you. And, you know, any thoughts on the GSA finally making the call? Well, um, <laughs> so I, I think it's going to be good that we don't have um, full-time fact checkers because I think... Um, I, I think there's there are probably going to be some issues with the language that we're using. I don't think my understanding is the GSA doesn't actually certify elections. What they do is they ascertain. Basically, they are saying that like based on the available information, we believe that the president elect will be of a different administration. So we're going to ascertain the new um administration and that allows uh, for a certain amount of funding to free up um, for <clears throat> the Biden transition team sort of as as you were mentioning the certification is actually happening at the state level from the like the canvassers uh, or something like that that are certifying e I, yeah I totally oh, I know. that it's so. a really good point but like, yeah. you're right so to correct my language, but it's, yeah. It's yeah. Funny. And I'm correcting your language and then just introducing my own set of just absolute falsities, but, but any, <laughs> anyways, <laughs> right, 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 right. No, uh, of, uh, distinctions without difference perhaps, but, but probably also still important because the elections themselves do need to get certified at the state level, um, to allow those electors who are still kind of like milling around in the background um, before they kind of actually make Joe Biden the president. Like, I, I think it, it's something that came up a lot in 2016. Like, hey, you know, the founding fathers may have done, did this thing with electors in case like people all voted for the person that we all think is a terrible idea. So like, let's just like change it. They can do that. They're the electors. So I think that is something that's worth um, worth bringing up again, that something that I, I feel like people should love to see us do away with eventually um, some of these uh, sort of uh, arcane policies and frameworks that um, people had sort of designed as fail safes against certain things, but we've largely accepted that, you know, that's not really how we want our democracy to work. I won't get into the electoral college um, at this point, but um, I do think, I, I, I guess I do think that that's worth mentioning. Um, I think the other point about um, Emily Murphy, who, uh, yeah, certainly a, a, a person that I had never heard of. Um, I've, I've learned a lot of names that I had never heard of. Um, the Georgia Secretary of State, um, whose last name I won't butcher, it starts with an R and it sounds very German, um, Raffin something. Uh, <laughs> I butchered it. Anyways, um, I, I think I think these characters uh, who are finally starting to come around to uh, what has been an obvious fact for at least fifty percent of the country, if not maybe like seventy five percent of the country, that Joe Biden won the election at least three weeks ago um, or whatever, two, you know, two two weeks and change now um, are on the Republican side finally starting to acknowledge it and, and move these things along. Um, which is, which is, I, th I mean, it's, it's important, um, but potentially not as important as, um, it has been made out to be. Um, I don't know. Uh, what do you, what do you think about that? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. So I think what, what you're saying here is, and what we've seen over these last few days and, slowly over the last few weeks is that, you know, as it's perhaps become more obvious to more people or as all of these legal challenges that were so, you know, vaunted and, and promoted by, you know, the Trump world have failed repeatedly in, in court, that more and more Republicans are, are starting to come around. And while we, you, we noted Emily Murphy, who's, I mean, her party doesn't theoretically matter. She's just a government official. But in addition to that certification, we've seen a number of Republicans start to say that, hey, we should make this transition process and the funds that you noted that go to, you know, 
enabling this transition process to happen, right? So, you know, we knew that Romney and Sass were going to come out, but we've seen, um, I could just name a few, you know, Portman, Rubio, Cornyn, like, uh, and I've seen now like lists on like the far right Republican side of like, these are all the traitors to, to the Trump, right? And so uh, we can pull up a full list, but your, your point is well taken is that there's been more and more people kind of saying, well, it, it's becoming evident to everyone that uh, even Paul Ryan today, I think, gave an interview over in Europe and he was pretty much like, the, the president needs to concede at this point. It's, it's just all you're doing at this point is weakening our democracy. Um, and I, I do think that's important, right? I, I have an image. I have, a, I have a movie analogy for you. Uh, I want you to think of Gladiator, right? And Commodus, who is the you know, wrongful emperor of Rome after he kills his father. He's the kind of the, one of the main figures in the movie. Um, at the end, when he's fighting Maximus, he's, he's lost, right? He, Maximus has knocked away his sword. He, he's wounded. He's staggering around. And he starts yelling to all of his soldiers around him. And he's like, give sword, sword, give me a sword. He's like, kill that man, right? To, to, about Maximus, who's the main character, the, the hero of the story. And the, the leader of the guard pretty much says stand down and, and the soldiers don't actually come to Commodus's aid for the first time in the movie. And that's like a little bit like watching all this unfold is kind of like what I'm seeing where Trump is the communist who's staggering around wounded, trying to cling on to power and, and yelling at people to go out and defend him like they've been defending him for years. And slowly people are like putting their swords away and saying like, this is over, you know? And so that's, that's kind of my movie analogy that, I've seen kind of played out over these last couple of weeks. Yeah. I, uh, I definitely like that. The one that always comes to mind for me is uh, the emperor has no clothes and um, he's just waiting for some people to be like, dude, you're butt naked and you need to go home now. Um, but I, I, I you think, you know, some of our audience might be gladiator fans and some might be uh, <laughs> emperor has no clothes fans. <laughs> I I, uh, I, would, I I mean, the way that you laid it out was so eloquent. I'd probably land on, on your side after hearing it. Um, but, but, but it, I mean, yeah, I, I think, um, I, I feel like that I, I couldn't also just leave this segment without mentioning the, like the Rudy Giuliani speech in front of the, the four seasons landscaping company as just like a, you cannot write this. You like, you can't make this stuff up. It is, like, like I, it's per, for me, it's just like the perfect, like, you know, crescendo on the insanity that's been the past four years. And now maybe like it, it needed something, it needed some way to, 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 uh, to end. And that was, that was it for me. Yeah. I mean, as embarrassing as that was, was that better or worse than his press conference the other day where he has the hair dye dripping down his face? Like, I mean, this is, I didn't know. I thought that was like an oil slick or something that was, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's, it's actually, if, if he wasn't such like a ridiculous and like somewhat dangerous character to have like in kind of floating around really powerful circles. It's really sad to see like 20 years ago, he was America's hero and, and now he's an absolute laughing stock. Um, but again, I mean, that's kind of in some ways, like how you kind of anticipated this administration was going to end, right? Like it was never going to end quietly or like smoothly or professionally. It was, it was, it was going to end something like this. Yeah. It's it's interesting to me that some people have talked about like you know he needs to concede for his legacy. I, I I'm not entirely sure where I heard that, but I think I've heard it in in a few different places. And I wonder um, I wonder what you think about that because I think we'll we'll certainly have to dive into like what actually is Trump's legacy, but his perception um, I think certainly for Democrats is no better or worse like i don't know who would a who's sort of standing here today certainly in progressive circles certainly and just anybody who's um a democrat or kind of left of center saying that this is totally you know completely unimaginable when for the last like eight months he's been you know sowing the seeds for i was going to call this i literally told you that everything that's happening i said was fraud and uh it happened and so I'm going to say it's fraud. Like that's not surprising. Um, like, I guess none of this is, <laughs> there's not, uh, I, I think it, and that has been sort of par for the course of the Trump administration is that 
we've always wanted to find like the height of, um, you, you know, your exasperation or I, I'm not even sure I can find the right word, but it's like, yes, yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. And that, that, you know, now that we've exposed it, you would repent a little bit and, you know, calm down or whatever. And his whole thing this entire time has just been like, tell me what I'm not allowed to do. I promise you I'll do that and take like 10 more steps past that line that you drew in the sand for me um, until you draw another lane. And I'm going to cross that one too. Yeah. I mean, hear me out on this take. Uh, I was thinking this, I don't know, today, last couple of days where I don't think I'm going to get much room here, but I kind of feel bad for the guy. Uh, <laughs> so I think that part of him does want to concede and you can kind of see it. And he, he's made remarks at press conferences. He's, he's had some tweets, but then he just gets like a deluge of, of people in a circle being like, you can't concede. And that have people out of so much kind of wrapped up in him that like he, he can't do anything else. And all of it is, as you had mentioned, it's his fault for, for let, sowing these seeds of, of distrust uh, for, for months and for building himself kind of, making himself the movement and, and he's a child where he can't back down at this point. I'll concede all of that, but it, it just seems where it's like, he can't concede like just for like his, I, so like that legacy point, I agree with you. I think his legacy at this point is this, you know, March macho man who, who's never going to concede. That's all about winning. And even like when it became, or when we thought it became clear in the weeks leading up to the election that he was going to lose, like you could, you could hear it in his rallies, even as he was doing five States a day, he was saying like, what happens if I lose? He goes, my whole life. Like, am I going to have to leave the country? I couldn't imagine losing to this guy. Like, I'm losing to the worst politician in history. And it was, like, funny, and you'd laugh. But, like, then you think about it, and it's, you know, he's just kind of musing. This is, he's like, thinking about this. this is a stream of consciousness. Like, and that's how we conduct his rallies, which is why they're so fascinating. But where he's thinking, like, I don't know that how I can go on after losing that. And, again, like, it's hard to have sympathy for this guy who, who's caused all of these problems. But I think that he he really doesn't know how to deal with this and that's not necessarily a rousing endorsement of the leader of the free world but uh i think he's he's stuck where there's there are millions tens of millions of people saying mr president don't concede like you're our only hope because he said he's their only hope and so he he just can't like he's just in this corner where there's no winning for him now yeah you can just yeah. let that take simmer. <laughs> think on that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, in in many ways, that it is a fair uh, assessment of where he is at personally. Um, I guess, yeah, for my own part and for the part of many other people, I sh- should make it known that I don't don't care and I don't feel bad at all. <laughs> all right, um, we, we'll get back to Trump in in the next two months in terms of his his legacy and. Um, you know, accomplishments and, and failures, we'll call them. Sure. That, that's sure. what we'll call them. All right. People can be on the lookout for that in the next couple months. Um, but, you know, now that we have some, some news on the, the Biden transition team and the incoming administration, you know, when we come back, um, we should talk about those people a little bit. Yes, indeed. Jack, do it again. We'll turn it. mentioned over this past week Biden has uh, begun to un- unveil his his cabinet picks and before I give you a rundown of, of some of the picks that have been announced this week I, I do want to preface it by saying and probably speaking for you as well although feel free to contradict me is that um, a lot of these names if I've heard of them at all it's it's been you know barely or years ago where I've heard of these people so I don't have enough knowledge to speak in depth about these people. Uh, I do think it's important to, to talk about them and um, their roles and what they mean, because these are the people that are really going to be leading our country theoretically for the next four years, you know, past administration and turnover aside. Uh, and so this has been, a, that's kind of been the big news story this week is Biden announcing the, these cabinet members. So I, I did want to talk about them, but uh, before I get into it, I just, I do want to acknowledge that we'll probably get into more depth on these people down the road it's we still need to go through the process ourselves of, of learning more about who these people are and, and what they stand for. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think um, I'll, I'll leave it to you to talk about. I think there were a few more firsts, like a few glass ceilings being broken in, in some of his positions, which are certainly uh, some of his nominations, um, which are certainly worth mentioning. Um, but I think this exercise that we're going to be going through about trying to learn about these people and, and actually, you know, what powers that they are able to wield, what they're able to accomplish kind of autonomously from um, the president are, are sort of positions that have always been less glamorous, but um, have been very important and influential, um, you know, the, 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 from Homeland Security to the Housing Department to um, Energy Secretary to all of these things, EPA, um, that I think, and of course, National Security, FBI directors, that sort of stuff as well, that trying to um, understand the president's sort of, you know, whenever we talk about presidents and elections, we're, we're really talking about, um, well, unfortunately, we're, we're almost always talking about the man, but the man himself, what he stands for, um, but really <clears throat> a big extension of the executive branch's power is the power to, to sort of nominate um, these kind of ambassadors of the U.S., um, whether it's ambassadors internally or, or, or to the rest of the world. Um, and so this is actually, you know, a huge part of how Biden, Biden's sort of influence in juxtaposition to how Trump ran things um, will be felt. <clears throat> I think in many ways, the Trump administration, uh, because a lot of these positions have to do with um, kind of regulating and, and governing um uh, a lot of Trump's appointees were actually people who were, who were sort of anti uh, the positions that they were put in, like Scott Pruitt, uh, you know, the Oklahoma attorney general who spent his entire career suing the EPA and trying to prevent them from regulating anything, getting put as the head of the EPA, that sort of stuff. Um, you know, we're going to see a very different uh, approach um, to these positions under the Biden administration. Yeah. And so a couple points there. One, one of the big failures of the Trump administration, in my opinion, and why things were so chaotic was that there was so much turnover in four years, really unprecedented level of, of turnover at, at that level, um, which just created a really chaotic scene in, in policy. We, we saw that, you know, the scattershot policy, whether it was internal policy or foreign policy. Um, and so, you know, I think stability, generally speaking, is a good thing. And hopefully we'll see more of that these four years. But to your second or your, your original point in something you've brought up before on the podcast is this kind of political awakening that's happened over the last four or six years in American society. And even amongst people like us who thought we were fairly politically um, in tune is that these positions that we might previously not have cared about, people care about them. And, and they're advocating for certain things, like even the fact that you know, lots of uh, Warren supporters wanted her to get the Secretary of the Treasury, or a lot of um, Sanders supporters wanted him to get the, the Secretary of Labor. Like, these are not necessarily like big time cabinet positions that we were talking about for eight, 12 years ago, but now people are, I think it's, it's become kind of the broader consciousness, some of these cabinet administration positions. And as, as you mentioned, that's a good thing. Like, we're, I'm, I'm going to about to mention a lot of people that I don't know, I wouldn't have known in the Obama or Bush administrations. Yeah. Well, a couple of them are coming back from the Obama administration. So Hang back together. That's one of the big things. Yeah. All right. So I think we should actually, I didn't, this wasn't on my list, but I think we should start with um, Vice President-elect Harris. I, I, I don't know that we have given uh, her enough, her enough time that this is uh, a really big deal. And she's, you know, not only the first female um, vice president, but the first uh, black vice president, the first Indian uh, American vice president. Uh, and so I I've said this a couple times and like I've reflected on it, like she checks a lot of boxes and I don't say that, I think sometimes it, it comes across like patronizingly, um, like kind of like, haha, she's, people are there because they check boxes. But even when we're talking about the election results and having you know, whether it was, you know, gay, black, male congressmen or transgender state legislatures or legislators, like, it's not just that they're checking boxes. It's like a big thing, like representation really does matter. And we've talked about this before, where no matter, in my opinion, at least, no matter 
what your party is, we want the umbrella of democracy to be as big as possible. And so whether you are a female or um, a black American or an Indian American, and you see someone up there that represents you in the White House, it's a big deal. And while, you know, I'm sure I'll get into this over the next four years or however long we're doing this podcast, uh, I am not the biggest personal fan of Senator Vice President-elect Harris. Um, you know, it, it, you have to give her credit um, for, for you know, her accomplishments and, you know, the position that she finds herself in and what it means for so many people in the country. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's well said. I'll leave it there. Thanks. I, I did really like the speech where she said, uh, you know, I am, I am the first woman to hold this position, but I won't be the last. You know, it's one of, it's one of those speeches where you can really get fired up, particularly if you're, if you see like all of the, the list of all the vice presidents and it's what? It's a bunch of old white dudes. Seven old white guys. And then now we have a middle-aged, you know, black Indian woman, uh, which I think those things are cool. All right. So we'll start with her. Uh, but then I'll go to the secretary of state uh, nominee, which is Anthony Blinken, uh, who worked in the Obama administration, uh, worked in the State Department, Center for Foreign Relations, worked in Vice President Biden's office, you know, Harvard, Columbia Law, the whole thing. Uh, let classic me run th- Secretary of State. Classic <laughs> Secretary of State. Uh, let me run through a bunch of them. Then if you have any thoughts on any of them, you can. Uh, I don't, when Blinken's name was leaked a day or two ago, uh, Obama was giving an interview and he said that, you know, Blinken was one of those guys that was with them um, making a lot of really important decisions at the time and, and had like really great confidence. So he gave a really ringing endorsement of, of Blinken. Uh, the treasury nominee is, is Janet Yellen, uh, who was a bit of a surprise pick uh, for some people, but she would be the first. First woman. Is, is that right? Mm-hmm. I thought so. And she's also, she was the head, the white house, um, the chief Econ- of economic advisors and um, maybe the fed, the Fed chairwoman too. I think she was the first woman to hold all three of those positions. I think so. No big deal. Uh, <laughs> the Department of Homeland Security nominee is Alejandro Mayorkas, who is a Cuban American Jew. Uh, so I got, I almost, I had to, when I first read that, I was like, wow, I don't, you don't see too many of those. I don't think, uh, but he's going to be the first Latino to, to hold this position. And this is, the department that oversees immigration policy. And while uh, you know, Latinx people are as diverse and far from a monolith as you get, a lot of our immigration policy right now deals with Latinx people. And it, it's, I think it'd be pretty cool to see you know, a Latinx person in position to deal with those people. So whatever, again, I'll keep running them down. Uh, the chief of staff is Ron Klain, who was his chief of staff when he was uh, vice president, Georgetown, Harvard Law, Supreme Court law clerk. Check, 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 check. Uh, the di- Director of National Intelligence, a woman named Avril Haynes, um, she would be the first woman to hold that position. She was previously the deputy of the CIA, the first woman to hold that position um, in Barack Obama's administration. Uh, she was the deputy national security advisor in that administration. So certainly well qualified, but she would be the first woman, female director of national intelligence. Um, national Security Agency, Jake Sullivan, so Avril Haynes went U Chicago, Georgetown Law, Jake Sullivan, Yale, Yale Law, Oxford. Uh, so those those are kind of the big ones. There were there were some smaller positions uh, that I saw given out. Uh, I'm going to blank on their on their names right now, but there were there are two females. One of them works for Senator Dick Durbin, and one of them works for um, the Majority Whip Steiny Hoyer, who are going to be like his Legislative Affairs directors. Um, one of them is a Palestinian American, and one of them so the Arab community was real happy when she was named. Her name's like uh, Rana Dodine or something like that. And then um, there's woman like Shuswek Goff, uh, who's a, a black female. Who, so like those two are heading up his legislative affairs. So it's one of those things. Biden came in and s- said that he was going to have the most diverse cabinet in history. And he certainly owes minority groups a lot um, for his election. And so, I mean, I guess a bunch of thoughts on this. One, uh, representation matters, as I said. Uh, two, diversity generally speaking, is a good thing. Just having a diversity of experiences and perspectives in your cabinet can, in my opinion, only make things better. Um, but three, if we're just going like classic patronage, like he owes a lot of groups for, for where he is right now. And, you know, they, they are looking for that representation and he needs to pay him back. 
Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I think we could certainly talk at length about the kind of the coalition that, that um, Democrats have relied on and that really sort of propelled Biden to his, uh, what was eventually like a 5 million uh, popular vote victory. Um, but I, I think for me without, and and I think your, your caveat that need to look into more than just where these folks went to school um, to, to kind of understand, you know, where they're looking to shape American policy going forward. Um, but just on the, on the outset, like the, the major takeaway that I have or, or the, how I'm going to put this in contrast to what we have been living under is that, um, you know, no one on that list, I, I think, um, will be unqualified for their position. Um, and that, you know, and you can, you know, <clears throat> I think we argue often about, well, you know, career politicians, not bringing anything new, not doing anything different. True. But there is a lot of stability there. Um, there's a lot of just like understanding the, how things work and being able to function within the bounds of a position. I mean, you know, people often, uh, idolize rule breakers or, or, or whatever. And, and often it, it, you know, breaking those, those norms can have kind of revolutionary outcomes, but often they can just kind of just like screw everything up, which is, um, in many ways, I think what people will feel like they experience under the Trump administration, you know, you had a ton of turnover, um, in part because a lot of people kind of, uh, got, uh, you know, ex experienced their consciousness, um, or, or whatever they, uh, got, uh, I don't know what, what they grew consciences and decided they couldn't do what they were doing anymore. But in, in many ways, like there were, there just seemed to be a lot of people who were occupying positions that they really didn't know how to um, occupy. And so, you know, they either left or were removed. And, um, and I think that is going to be uh, very different this time around. Like I would expect most of these people will uh, be in their position on day one and be in their position um, at the end as well, um, or not the end, but at least through, through Biden's first term. <clears throat> um, and so you'll get to see how they actually sort of shape policy and how they drive forward agendas um, in a way that was probably lacking um, from people who have these positions under the Trump administration. Yeah, I, I heard someone I read an article, two headlines. One said it was like delightfully boring picks. And we referenced that earlier where, yeah, none of these names are necessarily like sexy, these rule breakers that like people are huge fans of. But again, after the last four years, maybe not the worst thing. And then another headline I saw was revenge of the careerists. It's people who, and while we don't have to just check off like the Ivy League boxes and work in, work in the Senate and work in the CIA and now and work in the State Department, now you are the director of national intelligence. Like, that's not a bad path to take, right? Like, I, I, I guess I don't understand people. Like, you would, you might want them to do that. <laughs> right. You would want them to do all these things. And so I, I, I want to echo your point is like, there's a lot of oftentimes it's like, Oh, these career politicians, these people aren't even politicians. Like, but these career yeah, yeah. people in there, you're like the swamp, like they're just these like, people have been doing everything. Yeah. Everything right, the like, right way for their entire careers. Yeah. Really qual right. What? <laughs> yes, exactly. Like people that have been working their whole lives, to be qualified for this position now got the position. Like, I think as a country, that's generally a good that's, thing. That's uh, right. So I, I think I'm looking forward to the stability and the consistency. And I will say that I think the reason that one of the reasons, at least that the Dow hit 30,000 today is markets looking at this and realizing that we are going to get consistent policy. It might not be as economically friendly as it was under president Trump's administration, but at least we're going to know what we're getting time in and time out. And quite honestly, for, for me and you, for this podcast, I didn't love a lot of Obama administration policies. A lot of those policies are coming back. I'm happy. I'm excited to go debate those policies with you as opposed to just commenting on the clown show of there is no policy. We're just throwing darts depending on what the president tweets today, right? Like I, when, you know, Secretary of State Blinken does something or I didn't even mention John Kerry, uh, former Massachusetts Senator, Secretary of State, former uh, presidential nominee is uh, now a, he's going to be on the yeah 
the National Security Council, I believe, mm-hmm. as, uh, as an environmental specialist. He's the climate envoy. There we go. It's a, it's a totally made up title. Uh, but it, like, Well, it's, it's new. Yeah, so right. by the virtue of being new, it is made up, but I think it's right. Great. But fine, I'm, I'm excited to go debate what he does, right? Like, at, at least we're going to have policies to debate. So I, from my perspective, I can, who knows what their policies are going to be. I'll let them, you know, govern when they have a chance to govern. But I, I, at, least, at least there will be substantive things that we can debate, in my opinion. Yeah, I can't wait for kind of the uh, Republicans in the minority to be complaining about how Democrats might be destroying the com- country instead of kind of watching Trump like actually destroy it and have to sit and listen. <laughs> ah, but I digress. Should we end on that? Call it a happy happy Thanksgiving. All right. Yeah. So I will say now to to wrap this up in in the Thanksgiving spirit. Um, very thankful for you, Ricky, for, for getting this pod, podcast started and, you know, being so much of the driving force behind it happening um, over these first couple of months. So thankful to you. I'm thankful to, I, there's a couple of people I want to thank here. Uh, Matt Dwyer, who does like the, the back end editing for us. He's not going to listen to this because all he does is actually like do the, do the show. Uh, but he puts in the music for us, which I have personally really enjoyed. Uh, I want to thank Ginny Huntoon who drew, who did our um, our logo, which I've gotten like a ton of compliments on, like people reaching out and being like, "Wow, that logo is really legit." Um, and it is. Like, I, I don't think I really appreciated like how cool it was, but I think it's a really cool logo. Um, so she designed that for us. Um, and then all the people that have listened, you know, when we we first recorded a few episodes and we knew they weren't particularly good. But I was pushing to get it out. And you were kind of like, ah, I don't know if people are going to listen or if they, if they listen, it's bad. I don't know. And we've said repeatedly over this last month that since we reached out to people that, like, how awesome are our friends? You know, so for all of those people that have not only listened, but have reached out with a text or an email or have talked to someone else in their circle and said, you should listen to this or follow it on Instagram. There's, there's just been a lot of cool things that people have done over these last few months that have, I mean, we would sit here and do this if no one was listening. That's originally what we thought we were going to do, but it made, it made it really cool for people to reach out and say that they listened and whether they agreed or di- disagreed with us or thought it was a good episode or better, just to hear that kind of feedback. Um, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I am thankful for all of that and figured now is as good a time as any to, to thank those people. Couldn't agree more with that. Everyone have a happy Thanksgiving. We'll see you in December.
Shit! 